I am Ajne Dawkins, your co-host, and I am binging a different world and quite agitated that Jasmine Guy does not get her flowers for having the best comedic timing. I'm your co-host, Brittany Rogers, and currently Telfar's back security program is trying to drive me to the poorhouse. And together, we are the host of Verses, the podcast where poets confront the ideas that move them. Hey, co-hosts. Hey, co-hosts. <laughs> so I'm not going to lie. Right before we logged on this call, I definitely was just replaying and replaying and replaying that blessing that Megan Thee Stallion gave us. Dagnir minute-long video of her twerking. It's been a rough time in this country <laughs> for our nation. And what Megan Thee Stallion did is said, we need unity. Listen, we need a reset. <laughs> we need something we can all agree on. So I just want to know that that brought me some joy today. So I'm having to kind of shift mindsets a little bit. <laughs> if we're talking about pleasure and things that bring us joy, what's something that brings you pleasure best? Wine. Because the first time I had wine, I was like, this is horrible. And then I lived in Spain and I like went to wine tastings and I was taught like about it and how to understand all the different notes and the different colors and like the floral capacities and like how. And I was like, this is beautiful. I was like, this is a work of art. I still don't know all that. (laughs) I I was like, this is the, the, the variations of the notes. I was like, this is a work. This is a poem. (laughs) That's how I feel about wine. Got it. Um, Got it. So in thinking about things that I had to learn to enjoy, I think I honestly had to maybe not learn to enjoy, but learn to like openly embrace is comfort and extravagance. You know, if we're just thinking about upbringing, right? I did not come from an upbringing where we had it like that. Yeah. And so I think there's very much this sense that like you kind of preserve everything that you do have. You know, you don't go over. (laughs) You don't splurge. And I like a good splurge, y'all. I'm not gonna lie. I like to feel comfortable. I like soft things. I like beautiful things. You do love a good splurge. I like to feel beautiful. And you do be looking beautiful. Uh, thank you, Miss. I just want to put you. that just... atmosphere. <laughs> Listeners, you can ask you, Brittany, but I just want to confirm <laughs> that she is, in fact, fine as can be. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> just want to confirm that. You just want to say, um... <laughs> So I'm so excited to talk to our guest today, Kimmy Alabi, author of Against Heaven, which is one of the most pleasurable, like downright sexiest, active, living, sensuous books I have read in a long time. And so I'm so excited to talk to them and to hear their process behind like how they tapped into their bodies well it's palpable it's tactile it is like it almost feels like a beat like being in a studio and like somebody being like let me show you this beat that i've layered (laughs) kimmy alabi is the author of against heaven with gray wolf press 2022 selected by claudia rankine as winner of the 2021 Academy of American Poets First Book Award, their poems and essays appear in The Atlantic, Poetry, Boston Review, Catapult, Guernica, Them, The Breakbeat Poets, Volume 2, Best New Poets 2019, and elsewhere. Kimmy believes in the word-shifting power of words and the radical imaginations of Black, queer, and trans people. As cultural strategy director of Forward, 
Together, they built political power with cultural workers of color through programs like Echoing Ida and annual art campaigns like Trans Day of Resilience. Kimmy now lives in Chicago, Illinois. So we're so excited to have you here with us today, Kimmy. If you could open us up with a poem, we would love that. Gladly. I'd love to start with one that's dear to me, near to my heart. This is A Wedding or What We Unlearned from Descartes. Beloved, last night I doused us in good bourbon, struck a match between our teeth, slid the lit head lip to chest, throat zippered open and spilling. Our union demands a sacrifice. Take my masks, my wretched, immaculate children, sharp smiles bored with cavities, braids thick with hair slashed off lovers as they slept. The masks grew limbs and danced. So last night, to the fire, plank pushed, cackling as they bubbled and split, then dreamless dark, then mercy, Somehow, morning reached for me. Sun found us swaddled in sweat through sheets, gauze and salve while night wore off. O body, always healing despite me. O body, twin spy, tasked against my plot to rush the dying. Guardian of the next world's sweets, yes, I'll lick the salt. Yes, I'll wait our turn, because today we hold hands, mother each other. Bathe in warm coconut oil, our union, our long baptism. O oh body, all I forced you to know of thirst. Yes, body, you are owed a whole lake. Yes, body, I'll kiss our wrists, hold them to our ears, and spend our days losing to the waves. That's like the sauciest poem I've ever heard. <laughs> I just <wish> <laughs> I'm like holding my breath your whole reading. That was gorgeous. Oh, thank you. The way your images come out is absolutely banana. You know how like when you read Toni Morrison's work and it's like, dang, the, like the water on the stove ain't just boil. Like I had to do all this other stuff. Like, <laughs> like the children's like smile with their bored cavities. Like the cavities gotta be like, you know what I mean? Just like who thinks of that? Whose wow, brain works like that? Out here calling in Mother Morrison. I'm so geeked to be here and thankful for your attention to my work. This is so amazing. It is a work that demands attention. I'm like, it's so lush. And I was like, all of this it action, is. these verbs, everything is living, it's doing, it's, it's doing the things. So we were super excited. So why don't we start with Kimmy? What is moving you these days? Grief is moving me. Like, mm. it's literally running me. I feel so governed by grief. Not just personally or with my community, but collectively. Just seems like you can't walk down the street without encountering, stumbling on this grief. So I'm thinking about Rebellious Morning. That's actually the name of an anthology where a lot of poets, thinkers, and movement builders are considering what it means to mobilize around our grief, understanding that so many social movements are catalyzed by collective grief at the injustices that we're experiencing. Grief can be a really powerful force to harness for transformation if we're allowed the 
space to be together with it, to honor it, and to actually move through it together, to let it move us and to not run from it. That is such a honest answer and such a calling at the same time, because g- grief is, is an emotion I feel very often, but when I have a hard time sitting with, because like you said, it can really just immobilize you. So I feel grief and I'm like, yeah. ooh, got to keep it going. So I think it's yes. so, like the fact that you named that as a potential for movement and transformation is really powerful to me. Mm, yeah, that's a different way to be moved by grief, to be like running from it and not have it. Because I'd be <laughs> like, ooh, got to go. <laughs> Understood, right? Especially when there's no space given to really honor it or the thought, you know, like even there is, I was reading about how there's a time frame that some psychiatrists are giving to people's grief and beyond that time frame, it becomes something that's pathologized as though you can give grief a timeline. And if it lasts too long, then something's wrong with you Mm. instead of it just being something that ends up living with you, especially if your conditions aren't changing. Yeah, I I think there's something radical in being able to honor grief for however it lives and shows up. So I've been trying to just think and hold the power of grief and not see it as an impediment, not see the performance of wellness as what's needed for us to carry on, but actually You know, even from a political standpoint, I see protests and marches as a type of container for collective grief. When I'm I'm thinking about the Roe decision that was overturned and what it meant for people to have a place to go to scream, (laughs) which is what a Mm. march and protest can be. And I felt this way in all the protests that I've ever attended, all the marches, especially when I'm thinking about shared grief around Black death, Black tragedy. Something I feel like what you were saying kind of resonates with or settles on is the importance of not only community care, but also the importance of being able to abolish, you know, some of those norms, right, of performance, the norms of individualism. And I'm wondering how abolition and community care show up for you either on the page in your actual writing or in your writing practice? I appreciate the way that you framed this question because, yeah, abolition is community care to me when, when I think about organized abandonment of our communities and how, if we're thinking specifically about abolishing police and carceral systems, how in, in lieu of giving communities the resources that we need, there's organized abandonment and then the organized violence that comes comes in, you know, quote unquote, solve whatever problems arise. Community care is the antidote. <laughs> the community care is the cure. Community care is then requires these systems of organized violence to collapse and in its place forces and interdependence mm. with our communities. So, and when I think about like on the page, especially when I think about my collection against heaven, there's so m- many ways that I hope the personal and political are toggling. To me, the collection is really holding a lot of this grief that I'm already naming. And it's a journey of that grief moving from an individualized place to understanding how it is existing collectively and what care and connection can look like to heal those estrangements and get us to a place of imagining how not just we transform our relationships with ourselves, 
but with one another and then as the collective. And so I can't even disentangle the two because, mm. you know, it, Ruth Wilson Gilmore says it's not abolition is abs, not absence. So what is that present? It's interjecting care where there once was only violence and abandonment. Mm. I was envisioning the collection all over again and thinking about the care and the tenderness and just the intention that's put into it. And just so hearing your answer and picture in the poems was, was doing something for me. Mm. I'm still getting used to the fact that people are reading and experiencing this collection. So there is a moment when people are like, you're like, oh yeah, and I'm thinking about the collection. I'm like, oh yes, you read it because it's <laughs> yes. out people are reading it. <laughs> that moment actually brings me to a question because it is out. And like, I'm wondering what has been surprising about how the work has like arrived and been received by the world? Oh, wow. Everything is the surprise. My, you know, my friend's mentor, a writer named Cynthia Greenlee, who I co-edited the Echoing Ida collection with, uh, she has a saying where she goes like, what people think about me is none of my business. And I had to let go of this collection when I was done with it when I turned in my final draft and I turned it in with no expectations because my business was writing these poems, living with them, loving them, getting them on the page, getting this collection out. And then I thought, okay, what happens next? It's kind of none of my business. Like, <laughs> yeah. like I have my aspirations, right? Mm-hmm. Like my hope is that in freeing me, some of these poems help free somebody else. My hope is that people are like experiencing the pleasure of this collection, not just the pain that might be in, in some of these pages. Um, feedback is so generous. When someone reaches out and tells you how they experienced your work, that's to me, that's such an, a huge act of generosity from the reader. Nobody has to do that. But that's happened where folks have, especially Black queer people, Black non-binary people talking about how this is, you know, in their survival pack now, how like someone sent me a three-page letter about all of the moments in the collection that resonated with them. And I was reading it thinking, this is, well, one, complete surprise to I, I couldn't even dream of this type of generosity from a reader, this type of impact. I'm just so grateful that this collection of poems is getting where I've always wanted it to go into the hands of someone who's needed to read these poems as much as I needed to write them. And but it's all kind of the cherry on top. My my biggest success was like, oh, I whew, these poems, I wrote them. They're out. OK. <laughs> and now and again, the rest is none of my business. And I just have to stay with the practice and hope, you know, the next poems continue to visit me and I continue to learn and deepen and find my people. It's also really beautiful. That's just such a beautiful way to live life, to do the work and then to release it and to release the expectation of what the work has to give back or how the work then must function to like release that control and then to just like be able to sit in the beauty of like genuine surprise at what it does um so to not tell the work that it has to do a thing that's like that's such a beautiful way to navigate wow imagine not having control issues Um, (laughs) I mean listen I'm not saying it's the easiest thing to do (laughs) 
to have a whole ritual, right? Because I was so attached to making this work. Ooh. Like, I love poems and I loved the opportunity to create the long poem of this book. It was just the thrill of my life. And I experienced so much grief, to go back to that word, and letting it go. I was like, oh, and now it like now it lives apart from me. My friend who's a filmmaker, Jasmine Leeward, suggested this fire and I burned my pages and oh. a whisper in my intentions for this manuscript. It was tough because of how much I loved the project of the poems. Not that it was a project collection, but it was the writing them was the thrill. That's beautiful yeah. and, and so wise in so many ways. And Again, it's making me reconceptualize so many possibilities. So some of the things that I put out of the text, and I mean, hopefully they were, <laughs> fingers crossed, that they were somewhat intended. But <laughs> I, I think a lot about the relationship between the secular and the body or the secular and the erotic. And something that I mm-hmm. loved that uh, Against Heaven was doing was juxtaposing erotic with like the religious. And I'm wondering if there are ways that your work embodies or like, intentionally mimics spaces of erotica or kink along with devotion? Like in what ways are those things tied for you or not tied for you? It was a process discovering this connection. It was just through the practice of writing that I realized these kind of twin and connected obsessions. I found a journal from 10 years ago where I was naming some writing intentions and I wrote down, you have to stop writing about God and sex. (laughs) We're done with these things. We have to move on. Let's write about something else. But I clearly haven't, right? I've spent a lot of these years writing poems where the erotic and the spiritual are intersecting, right? And to me, when I think about my First, my religious upbringing, it was, you know, the erotic was nowhere to be found. But I definitely grew up in a household where sex, the erotic, like those were like, and it was actually the only conversations about sex were like, if you have it before marriage, you're going to go to hell. Like boys are going to want to have sex, like tell you they love you, but they just want to have sex with you. You know, it was just it was this thing that you had to like duck and dodge because folks were coming for you to like bring you down to the underworld. And if you wanted to maintain that relationship with God, that relationship with goodness, then you would have to, again, duck and dodge until, of course, your marriage and then you become your husband's like sex life. I don't know. It was just so wild. It was just such a disembodied orientation to sex that I grew up with. Later in my life, especially when I encountered really liberated queer kink spaces, there was something about the erotic that helped me arrive back into the body that I didn't even realize I was estranged from. And when I think about collectively what these systems all of these systems, these hierarchical systems, these systems of oppression do to us. It's their systems of estrangement, estranging us from the earth, estranging us from the rest of the natural world, from one another and from ourselves. I used to call myself a brain in a jar and with pride, uh, my body was completely incidental. And it was through the erotic that I arrived that back into my body and could access my intuition again, could access what I feel to be the different spiritual technologies and knowledges that the body holds. And to me, that is, there's so much divinity in being able to access the body's knowledge 
access that intuition because I think it allows you to be able to access a different type of relationship with the divine, a different type of relationship with one another, a different type of relationship with the earth. And a relationship that has the magnitude of what I was desiring from these more religious Christian orientations to the divine, to God. So I think that when I, especially in the collection, as I'm writing toward God and the erotic, it is mirroring this journey that I had to liberate myself personally and to reconstruct what my political orientation was and my orientation to the collective was. Because when I was in that disembodied state, um, I was also deeply depressed. I was deeply lonely. I was, I had needs that I didn't even understand needed to be met. And I also uh, was subjected to a lot of power over relationships, handing over a lot of my power to external forces. And I think there's something, and I, I began with an epigraph from Audre Lorde's Uses of the Erotic, The Erotic is Power, because I feel like that essay so succinctly says what I've been rambling about, the idea that once you are able to access um, your true desires and outside of a sexual sense, but once you're able to inhabit your body in a way that uh, helps to identify what it is that actually makes you come alive. Anything that interrupts that relationship uh, becomes untenable. And so in the collection, when I'm tussling with that white patriarch whiplasher, God, and positioning the erotic as its opposition, it's in an attempt to have folks locate a power elsewhere, recognize who's interrupting that power and maybe how deep that obedience goes. I'm like, I'm sitting with that and also so much appreciates you giving language to everything that you're thinking. Like, yeah. There was so much I connected with there, especially as a person who also grew up in very traditionally religious spaces and as a person who still considers themselves very Christian, but also very connected with the erotic and very connected with my body and what I feel like brings me pleasure or brings me joy. I just, again, really, really feel seen. <laughs> I really feel seen in this space. Shout out to Religious Rearing Gang. <laughs> <laughs> and also shout out to like relearning because I do think there's a way in which if your body is disconnected from pleasure, you also are disconnected from a range of emotions. And as writers, especially, that's so harmful, right? As people, it's harmful. And as writers, it's like, how do you connect to your emotional body if you can't connect to the body that brings you joy? Absolutely. You can't connect to the truth. Yes. I'm about to be thinking about this, like, for three days from now, I'm going to be like, and then they said that. That was crazy. (laughs) Um... I'm curious now as you're relaying all of these things about the divine, about the body, about God. So you have this against heaven, right? Um, <laughs> which I'm, I really appreciated. I came to your um, talk that you had yesterday with Denez, your reading. And, um, and w- was it a sem- seminary co-op? Mm-hmm. The book, yep. And um, hearing you kind of expand on the title and um uh I was really invested also in you talking about your use of kinnings and so mm-hmm. I'm curious how the sound and the aesthetic of the black church has informed your work um and you you talked about last night um this title 
being both against as in like in rebellion of like an opposition to, but also like against as in beside, like, mm-hmm. but its own entity. Um, and I was wondering if like when you're bucking up against the concept of heaven and religion, are you also bucking up against the sound and aesthetic of what we consider like our the religious sound and aesthetic that we have access to? Like, was that part of your craft decision? You know, clarify for listeners against heaven, there are five title poems. Uh, so I approached against heaven from uh, different places, but I began really in opposition. It, uh, so mm. the first against heaven was an oppositional poem that I wrote and I wrote it during the 2020 uprisings. And it was when I was, um, deepening my studies of abolition, deepening my work in community around defunding police. And, uh, I'm also a narrative strategist, a cultural strategist for movements. And so when I'm thinking about how narratives need to transform, I'm also thinking about what are the narrative lenses people have. And there's so there's such a commitment to law and order. There's such a commitment to guilt and innocence that makes mm. a project like abolition um, sticky because it's uh, it's so deep. And again, it goes all the way down to this uh, you know, religious architecture, whether or not you practice uh, Christianity in this country, it's still a part of the foundational meaning-making architecture of our country. And so, uh, Tourmaline, phenomenal filmmaker, uh, tweeted out, when we say abolish police, we also mean the cop in your head and in your heart. This is also an epigraph and against heaven. And um, other abolitionists have expressed the sentiment, this idea of abolishing the cop in our heads. And there's so many ways that uh, a particular type of God is positioned as a cop in our head. Um, to, yeah. So the first against heaven came from from there, really um, sitting with this idea of our commitment to guilt, innocence, uh, our commitment to punishment, our commitments to uh, a type of uh, disposal, uh, and uh, thinking about that all the way down to the foundational architecture of our deepest beliefs in the divine. Uh, and then after I wrote that, and that poem was uh, uh, on its own for a while as the only against heaven, but I didn't want to stay in an oppositional place because there is, well, one, it was so rich, the title against heaven to me. I was like, oh, this can mean so many different things. And I also wanted to pose instead of, uh, I, I don't like to stay in a place of purely rejection, even though I think that's a powerful place to be. But there was more that I wanted to unearth about what could be embraced instead. And that's where these ideas of, um, the erotic um, of of the earth and the ways that we need to um, and uh, can reclaim our relationship, heal our estrangements. That's where that um, started to come in with additional against heavens that I wrote. Um, there's one that starts the book uh, and kind of poses uh, uses it's a double golden shovel using uh, lyrics from Saba and Nikakim who in their songs claim you know there's heaven all around me what if heaven's right here and so as I was playing with the idea of against heaven in a few different ways I wanted to be able to assert that we have ac- more access to a divinity that actually could lead us to a type of 
collective transformation. We don't have to make our world in the image of this power over deity. We can make it in the image of these uh, um, healed estrangements, the power of reconnecting to one another and the earth through the the erotic. And so um, I'm trying to um, bring in your, you were talking about the kennings of last night. Um, I'm, I'm missing the rest of your question right now. <laughs> no, and so. part of it is part of it is absolutely my fault. I was so excited. <laughs> so it's partially the way I phrased it. So last night you articulated that your use of kinnings was partially because of the way the American like English fails us. Yes, it does. Um, and you know what it what does it mean to construct your own language? Yes. Um, so I was thinking of that idea that you posited. Yeah. And then also this idea there are all of these things in faith that have failed us all of these things in the black church that have failed us and I think the black church is really evident in your work and I was wondering if in your use of kinnings in your use of the craft decisions you make you feel like you're not just bucking up against the religious concept of heaven or religious concepts in general but also like these cultural aesthetics in the black church um are you using language for both of those got you yes 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 so i think that um when i think about the kennings and the um some of these language choices i um uh it's not specifically about the black church at all um I have an oppositional relationship to the English language. I think English is one of the um, most dangerous weapons that human, that, well, we didn't create it, but that, yes. <laughs> we created, you know, and so, um, and, you know, though Kennings have old usages, you know, from Beowulf and earlier, um, but I, I love the, the music of language. Uh, English is the only language I know how to speak. So I just am finding the music in it. And, uh, when I think about the black church, I think about my uncle who is a bishop. I grew up going to his church, a tremendous order, right? There's like something about the way that the black church has, uh, harnessed the, uh, power of the sonic both in um uh sermons and in uh with the choir to create this incredible spiritual technology there's something about the black music that comes out of our um uh spiritual traditions uh and you know christianity just being one um like form that that takes i feel like there is a spiritual thrust um that uh, uh exists throughout a lot of different practices that Black folks have that are not necessarily specific to the um, that organized religion or that uh, or the um, like violences of uh, um, certain religious traditions, but that are specific to how Black folks have survived. I think that we've baked in so many spiritual technologies, and then that includes the sounds that appears in our religious spaces that ignite that type of um, fervor and release. And I even think about how you know beyond say just released break my soul and yes. you know, some uh, house sounds and we know that house music comes out of black queer chicago yes, right yes. and we know that house music is also like a sibling of gospel like or an offspring of gospel right there's so much in black music that um is 
harnessing this energy uh, from gospel, from our Black church spaces because of its power to facilitate release. Um, and we were talking earlier before we started recording about Ashan Crowley's Black Pentecostal Breath. There's so many amazing um, Black thinkers who are um, breaking down the the sonic power, the, the movement power of, of these spiritual traditions that we've been practicing. There's something incredibly liberating and profound about the music that has come out of the Black church and uh, and the derivatives of that music. And I feel really informed by it. That's where I first understood the power of the sonic, the power of these oral traditions. And poetry, of course, is an oral tradition. And I always experience it, like even with this book, I always experience poetry primarily in the air and in the ear, uh, understanding that just like my uncles at church, you know, whether it's the one on the keys or the one behind the pulpit, like they are both harnessing this sonic power on top of the the word that they're spreading. But, you know, like if let's be honest if whoever's on the keys that sunday stopped playing if the choir wasn't there would anybody catch the spirit all the way like you know the ser- the content of the sermon is only part of it right like or a, a visiting pastor comes who does not have the delivery of <laughs> you know like the beloved pastor and everyone's just like nodding like uh-huh uh-huh but it's you know like it's there's something else that's accessed in order to reach the people in order to facilitate that release and surrender. And so I do like to play with language uh, so that I'm finding the space between music and meaning to like borrow and paraphrase from something I heard um, Fred Moten say. Uh, And the music that I'm always trying to um, pull from or the the sonic power uh, I've learned the most from is gospel music. Because I've seen the way that it has facilitated so much power and release, despite co- like lyrical content that I don't agree with. I still I listen to gospel music all the time, not because I believe in its content, but because there's something about the sonic power of it that helps me uh, get free. And so I like to play with language to the point where I'm f- definitely finding the music of it. Um, and which is where things like Kennings come in. Um, I'm, I just want to be able to break and stretch English enough for it to serve my musical purposes, uh, mm. informed by the way that music has saved me, continues to save me. Did that get, did I answer your question? You did. (laughs) Yes, you did answer my question. And it was incredibly beautiful. I was hoping you were going to bring up Ashanti Crowley's uh, Aesthetics of Pentecostal Breath. I know we just talked about that. Um, And it just, yeah, I think it answered. Here's the thing. You always answer my question and then 20 more pop up in its place. Because I'm like, we could go in all of these directions. Yeah, I've tried to speak in brief, but I come from long-winded people, okay? No. I come from pastors. It's okay. Oh, listen. <laughs> listen. It would be like five more minutes, and it's all good. <laughs> no, that, that's me and Brittany are Y'all right at home. before you came. Okay, and, and then, 
and me and Brittany are right at home. Um, so in the vein of, of this bringing up additional questions, right? So now I'm thinking about not just the music and Against Heaven, but thinking about form and the ways mm-hmm. that you play with form and flip form. Like when I opened that book to that uh, double golden shovel, I said, oh, okay. This is how... <laughs> This is how they plan with me, right? This is how we're starting <laughs> things. <laughs> and I'm wondering about like what what helps you discern between when it's time to use a traditional form or when it's time to like break or subvert that form. Mm. I um the the agency and the word decision is one that I can't claim. I don't know if it's from a um it's from a place of play. I'm always playing. My practice is always this experimentation, this exploration. And I found so much uh, um, excitement, pleasure, um, surprise in playing with certain forms. Uh, when, you know, it's called a double, sh- double golden shovel in the book. Um, sometimes I call them acrostics because I want to honor that the golden shovel was a form that Terrence Hayes created to honor Gwendolyn Brooks using Gwendolyn Brooks's poetry. These golden shovels do not. I still call them that because uh, I um, am connected to the form through that, that lineage and um, resonate so deeply with Gwendolyn Brooks's work. But um, the, when I started to think about Against Heaven as a concept that I wanted to play with in a few title poems. There was a way I wanted to have more intertextual conversations, cross-medium conversations. Heaven lives in our popular imagination in a lot of different ways. And I wanted to be able to engage with them through um, these double golden shovels and understand what I thought. I don't go to the page understanding all the time where the poem is going to take me or what it is I want to communicate and explain. And the poem is a little walk for me. The practice of playing uh, helps me understand what it is that I think. And I already had this, I already posed against heaven and I wanted to flesh out, okay, well, what do I mean by that? What could I mean by that? What are other routes to that? So using text from other places, having a form that um, I could play within that gave me a bit of structure to be able to bounce some new um, uh, thoughts around was was really helpful. Understanding that, you know, I was already pretty committed to being against heaven. Okay, so now what does that mean? Uh, and that's where the, there are a few um, double golden shovels in Against Heaven that are the title poems. And then one Against Heaven is a a blackout of a new story. And so it was me encountering these other texts, songs, speeches, and uh, giving myself a container to think within. Your brain just over here like. <laughs> is, is, is a, a mess. Poetry is like a discipline that helps me like organize some of these thoughts because I'm just, <laughs> I could be a little bit of everywhere. Uh, so, so grateful to poetry for pinning me down. I was going to say, this is, this is the mess. <laughs> uh, One last question. If you had to name three people, alive, dead, 
this genre or another who you feel like in order to understand your work, we should engage with their work. Who would those people be? I love this. First and foremost, I have to name Patricia Smith. Mm. She is a reason I am a poet. Uh, I remember seeing her when I was 18 after experiencing some of her work in high school, but seeing her read for the first time and having all of my molecules rearranged, understanding the power, again, of the sonic and understanding what poetry could do. Patricia Smith is just masterful and the sonic plays such a huge role in her work. And she plays on the page in ways that make me want to play and experiment more. You know, she has a double golden shovel in incendiary art that I studied as I was creating my own. So absolutely Patricia Smith. And then... I have to say Audre Lorde, her, I mean, her ideas are so fundamental to my mind's construction, especially this collection. I'm thinking about the essay, The Uses of the Erotic, Poetry is Not a Luxury. All of her essays, they live within me. They reanimated me. They returned me to my body at a critical time. And the way that she uses the personal as a route to the political, the way that she's holding a sense of like care and survival and harnessing the power of the word for it. I mean, just foundational. And yeah, you need to read her to maybe understand the place. You know, there, there are things I don't even explain in my text because I'm like, y'all have read Audrey Lord, right? Like, I don't even have to argue <laughs> for this. You get it, right? Y'all already read her. The vibes are vibing. <laughs> right? So definitely her. And um, Denez Smith, because Denez is just like, I mean, I, I I absolutely adore Denez Smith's work. And, you know, we're all students of Patricia Smith, of course, in different ways. <laughs> but there's something about and the way that Denez plays on the page. Like, Denez's line, like, are all poems right like (laughs) they and I I'm just completely in love with their approach to language and how they've shaped their collections so while there are amazing and poets and other writers I could name I think those are the three for for this question that's such a perfect yeah, and well-rounded yeah. answer, though. Like, I know in theory yeah. there's no wrong answer, but that was the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> I need affirmation. I am a Leo, so thank you. <laughs> that was the right answer. <laughs> Welcome back. We are going to play a little game of fast punch. Hey. So would you like to be an optimist or a pessimist today? I really need to practice some optimism. Let me be an optimist. I love that for you. All right, let's move through it. Best gospel song? Uh, Bomb and Gilead. Come on now. Come on now. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm supposed to be neutral. Go ahead, Brittany. Uh, Okay, best writing snack? Ooh, I love some dry Honey Nut Cheerios. A classic. Come okay. on now. Okay, so so best sexy song. Uh, are y'all you're familiar with Sunday Service? Yes. Um, they have a, a track on their album that is a gospel version of So Anxious, Souls yep. Anchored. And yep. I plan in uh, sometime next year to debut a burlesque routine. Okay. I think there's something, of course, so submissive about gospel music. There is the pure devotion of that song while also being attached to this genuine, like, boom, boom. 
And so, yeah, I want to do this like self bondage routine on stage to that song. (laughs) Listen. Not you talking now about submission and self bondage. Go have me sweat on the podcast. I merge the erotic with the divine. I think that's just what I'm going to be up to for the next little while. We love to see it. Listen, love to see it. Also, love that perspective because I love that album. It's so good. Best form. Oh, a best form. You know, I use so many golden shovels and I use them in a remix style. So shout out to the classic golden shovel yes. honoring Gwendolyn Brooks's work and the amazing anthology with all of the golden shovel poems that that do just that. I love the intertextual conversation that gets to, to happen there. But since I have not written a traditional golden shovel, I think I'll say Pantoom oh. because I love the repetition mm. and the turns that keep happening. I feel like that's how my brain works. (laughs) And there's so much that gets to be recontextualized in the repetition that I think is just, it really honors the way that my mind is observing (laughs) and um, processing information. Even though I don't write a lot of pantoums, I I love reading them because I love that habit of constantly turning over what you thought you knew and having it in a new context. I think we all need more practice with that since that's so much of how the world flows anyway. So I'm going to give you two answers. I cheated. That's what you get. You giving crap. (laughs) We love it. Listen. (laughs) Okay. Best genre. Oh, like of anything? Oh. oh, I mean, I am gonna say, because it's in my bones right now, house music. <laughs> I've had to listen to so much house music because that's the season we're in. It's Pride. I'm here in Chicago, Black hey. Chicago. All of our like big R&B pop stars are bringing it out again. We all have a lot to release, a lot of grief to move through. And just like the folks who originated that sound, going through their own epidemic, queer community, losing people, living in a state of grief that was not collectively acknowledged. Folks let it out on the floor. And I think that's what we're going to have to do safely, I hope. Those are great. (laughs) I love this game. Would you? <laughs> I got to play fast punch. This is so cool. I love it. <laughs> and killed it and gave us a crowd talk again. Period. <laughs> it's the generosity. Uh, <laughs> we would love it if you would do us the honor of closing us out on one last poem. Absolutely. I'm going to leave you all with the last against heaven mm. in the book, which is the first against heaven I completed. It really holds the spirit of that tourmaline epigraph. When we say abolish police, we also mean the cop in your head and in your heart. Against heaven. I used to pray to a man-faced God, kept his whip beneath my bed, set alarms for daybreak lashings, pressed white cotton to the flay, made flags of the blood soak. Raised them from my window, called this worship. Dreamt heaven a jury, small as a county, where nobody looked like me. Winged bailiffs plucked my cuffs to trap my cousin in a hot coal cage. Called this roulette 
freedom, licking my raw wrists. Which kill blew my tatters down, peeled me to the blackest jade, remothered me to the squad car blaze, loot and shard my siblings now. Which kill? Forgive me. I feared the devil's prison, misfaithed the sheriff in the sky. Why? Which kill? Forgive me, family. I miscountried. Our swarming anthem of my true homeland. Heaven and hell are the same empire. Half slipped, gasping, clutching our hems. Ungoverned by the lie, with fists and flames, we cleave. I love that collective breath. We all have to be like, whoo. Just to process it all. And I think your poems are like just as generous as conversation with you is. Yes. So I found myself yes. like rereading everything. Like, oh my God, oh, the images, the the verbs, like the movement, the thought, like almost like you don't know where to focus on, right? Can you hear you read as an experience? <laughs> I'm thrilled. It is. Just want to say, <laughs> I'm thrilled. Um. <laughs> I'm so grateful to be in conversation with you. This has been such a treat. It's been our pleasure. It's been absolutely our pleasure. It truly has. Listening to Kimmy talk is first off just a masterclass in so many things and poetics of the body and sensuality and religion and devotion and what it means to study something so deeply that it almost feels like a worship. One of the things that's really beautiful to me is think about devotion in a myriad of spaces beyond just the traditional religious context. So in a book like Against Heaven, that's bucking against traditional religious experience to Mm -hmm. still be so heavy with devotion and commitment. For sure, for sure. Like, when I'm thinking about devotion, there are so many spaces that I'm devoted to that have nothing to do with anybody's institution. I'm devoted to the girls at the beauty shop on Saturday mornings. I'm devoted to everybody on my block, whether I know them or not. I'm devoted to everybody (laughs) from 48205. I... I don't know. I'm deeply devoted to to black women, to femmes, to black folks, to uh, babies. Anyone that I feel caught to love or to treat with tenderness, I then also view a part of my life as in devotion to to maintaining that tenderness and maintaining that connection. I think spiritual devotion is incredibly present for me, definitely in some in a lot of orthodox ways. And then I think that devotion spills over into a devotion towards others, or sometimes it's interchangeable in a way where I can't see the lines blurred. Like Mm. there are some ways in which my devotion to you, Mm. my devotion to Mimi, my devotion to these folks in my life is like inextricably, like I can't separate it from my devotion to God, but then I also have a devotion to narratives. Mm-hmm. I have a devotion towards Intozaki Shange's For Colored Girls, 
so much so that I revisit it and I watch it in moments of like examining my faith or like I I return to it in the way that I return to the Lord's Prayer or in the way I return to books of the Bible. There are certain things that I reread and re-listen to over and over again that are a part of sacred practice for me. Even though I'm for the most part orthodox and it is not a canon thing, it is still a sacred thing for me. I'm going to have to meditate on all of this, (laughs) y'all. I need to. Honestly, yeah. Today was too deep for me. <laughs> Let's chill. Look, <laughs> I have to make myself a nice warm cup of tea, maybe, and just and just ponder, um, ponder under a soft soft blanket. So. Let's let's thank some folks and get out of here so we could do that best. Who do you want to thank today? I want to thank my local libraries in Detroit because I, if I'm thinking about devotion, I was so dedicated to reading that I would like walk to whatever library was closest to me, no matter where I was living in the city. So much so that all of my librarians knew me by name. I knew what days new books were coming out. (laughs) I knew which library to go to for what genre, like who had like the latest drops. It was a big it was it was almost like a thing that I did as like religion or ritual. Um, so there were days that I would pick to go to the libraries. And again, shout out public libraries. They're an absolute necessity. So, yeah. Love that. I want to thank church mothers who cuss and talk crazy. Shout out my granny. <laughs> hey, you know what? <laughs> For, I think, always showing... <laughs> A multi-layered, a sense of duality, if you will, (laughs) in the like sacred and profane and secular. I love, I love a good church mother who can go from speaking in tongues to cussing. Do you want to give our thank yous for everyone else best? So we want to give a warm, warm thank you to our guest, Kimmy Alabi, who gave us so much to think on. We want to thank Poetry Foundation. We want to thank Itzel Blancas, Adami Noriega, and Elon Sloan. We want to thank our wonderful producer, Sin Pim, and Omni Productions. We also would love it if you would subscribe to the VS Podcast. Wherever you listen to your podcast, y'all, we are on all of them. Like, rate, and subscribe. Bye. Bye, y'all.